All right, well, let's get started. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 10 tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 10, making our way through through the book. So let's open a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come and, and gather in this place and open up our copy of your word and study it and read it together. And, and Lord, we just ask that you would uh, uh, just uh, calm our hearts and our minds, Lord, as we come to your word and Help us to set aside the busyness of our day or week and, and just ask you to, to, to speak afresh to our hearts through your word tonight. And we pray for those who couldn't be here tonight and just pray that you would uh, extend your grace to them, whether they're traveling or not feeling well. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to read Second uh, Samuel chapter 10 and then we'll um, go through it. Second Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. After this... The king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their Lord, do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and then to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians and Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of uh, Ma'akah with a thousand men, and the men of Tob. 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and, and uh, Rahab and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel, arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong uh, for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Elam with uh, Shobach, the, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer, at their head. 
And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Interesting chapter. Sounds kind of like another war-ridden chapter, but there's a lot more here really than meets the eye. In this, this account here in Second Samuel, it's really given to us. It's, it's incorporated here in the story of the succession of David uh, to the throne because it, it provides the setting for the next two chapters, the story of David and Bathsheba. If you don't have this you're not really going to understand what's going to happen next and so it really supplements uh, the account of David's military action all the way back in back in second Samuel chapter 8 remember when we went through second Samuel chapter 8 and just to kind of put this in context before we get into it chapter 10 looks back to chapter 8 when we went through chapter 8 remember it was battle after battle after battle and it just kind of listed them randomly well one thing was odd in that chapter was when David it said that he secured the cities of uh, the the Ammonites. And people questioned that because that's not even part of their the land that God gave them. All right? It wasn't, it wasn't like the Ammonites were in Israel and they were fighting. They went after them. And so in chapter 8, it doesn't make any sense. But when, it, when you get to this chapter, it explains what happened in chapter 8. So it, it tells us why, in the end, David ended up with these cities that were really out of the region of Israel, okay? And then, so it looks back to chapter 8, but then it also uh, looks forward to chapter 11 and 12. And next week, we're going to look at chapter 11, maybe part of 12, but probably chapter 11. And, you know, we've all read through chapter 11, and we've read the story of David and Bathsheba. And, you know, I remember as a youth pastor teaching this, and, you know, teaching of the the wickedness of lust, promiscuity, and all that stuff. And, you know, this time as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking, you know, I was really teaching stuff that wasn't in the text. It's just not there. I mean, when you hear pastors, it preaches well. You know, here's this sexy lady up on her, up on her rooftop, you know, in her bikini next to her pool on a hot day. Well, none of that's true. The Bible doesn't say that. And, and so we're going to look at that maybe in a little different light next week. But until you understand what's going on here in chapter 10, what happens with David and Bathsheba doesn't really work. It doesn't make any sense. And it also, chapter 10 is really, you know, sometimes when we divide our Bibles up in the chapters and verses, it's good to find things. But sometimes the divisions make no sense at all. Because this is really one story, chapter 9, chapter 10. It's all, it's all together. It's not a separate chapter, per se. It doesn't change thought. It just, like, just continues right on. And so when you see that, it's really part of the same narrative as chapter 9. And, and by that, I mean, when you look at chapter 9 and chapter 10, you see two situations here. Both show King David wanting to treat the son of some guy that's the, the father of the son who David had some kind of an agreement with previously. 
All right, and you see that I put the names down there in, in chapter 9. We have Mephibosheth, who was uh, Saul's grandson, I'll be correct this week, and, and Jonathan's son, and jo- Jonathan had an agreement with David. Remember? I mean, he was King Saul's son, and he was really rightful heir to the throne, if you think it that way. And so when David was anointed king, most kings would just wipe out any, any of the, the remaining kings or the previous king's family, whether he liked them or not. They just were all killed just automatically. So there was no successor to that person's lineage. Well, David didn't do that. And so it, it shows David wanting to treat these sons well for the sake of father. And in, and in chapter, for the sake of the father that he had an agreement with, in chapter 10, we see Hanan and Nahash. It says that David had some kind of an alliance with Nahash probably because Nahash was King Saul's, one of King Saul's enemies. So therefore, it automatically, you can conclude that he was David's friend. Anyone who was a friend of Saul usually was an enemy of David and, and vice versa. So we see that, that you had these sons who David wanted to kind of help out. Secondly, you see in both stories, David is the one who takes the initiative. Uh, Mephibosheth didn't come to David and say, hey, can you help me out with my inheritance? And, you know, no, David went to him. And the same thing here in this chapter, you see David, it says right there at the beginning, after the king of the Ammonites died and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place, David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the, the son of Nahash. Why? As his father dealt loyally with me. So you see the same picture going on there. And this is where it gets interesting. The same Hebrew word is used here. It's used in, in verse chapter 10. It's used in, in chapter 9. It's even used all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And that word is hesed. And what it means is steadfast loving kindness or covenant love, as we'll call it. And so it, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14... This recounts the whole situation between David and, and Jonathan. In verse 14, it says there, 1 Samuel 20, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. This is who? Jonathan speaking to David. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You know, Jonathan, was, Jonathan here, well, he was the only one that really understood this whole picture. He's the only one that really understood that his dad was a horrible king. <laughs> he was a bad, bad, bad man. He was the only one who understood that his dad's reign was coming to an end. He was the only one that understood that God was not going to make him king just because he was the son of a king. He understood that completely. He also understood that David was God's choice, king for Israel. He wasn't going to argue with that, and that was going to come to place. Jonathan was the one who understood all that. And so that's how we can explain his loyalty to David over even his own dad. He still fought with his dad, died, the whole thing. But in his heart, he knew what was going on here? Well, that word, when it says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that's that word has said in the, in the Hebrew. And it means this steadfast covenant love. It's a love of choice. It's a love 
that is agreement. What's a, what's a covenant? A, co a covenant is basically a contract, right? It's a treaty. It's a treatise. It's, it's promises. It's, it's something where promises are made between two parties. There may be oaths that are going back and forth. Uh, there's treaties that are, that are made. Sometimes there's threats that are made. If you break this covenant, here's what's going to happen. And by a covenant, the people are bound together. They're bound together on the, on the, on the, in the relationship by the loyalty they have to this covenant. Well, that's what David and Jonathan had. And so he's saying here, based on that covenantal love, he said, please don't kill me, <laughs> you know, when, when you, you're going to kill everybody else. You know, let me live. And they had that kind of a relationship. Well, then you jump over to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we saw last week in verse 7, it says, And David said to him, speaking to Mephibosheth, he says, Do not fear. You know, he was getting called before the king. Poor Mephibosheth, he's crippled. He's thinking, okay, I'm, a, I'm done. I can't run. I can't do anything. This guy's just going to kill me. I mean, he found out that, uh, you know, I'm still alive and I'm, I'm one of, you know, Saul's relatives. He says, do not fear. I will show you kindness. Same word. Has said, covenantal love. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore, restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. It's that kind of that kind of overflowing generous gracious love that David is showing. And he's the initiator here. He's the initiator back in chapter 9. He's also the initiator in chapter 10 when it says and David said I will deal the ESV I think says loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash as his father dealt loyally with me. Same word has said. And I say well why are you making such a big deal out of this? It's a very big deal. It puts everything in perspective because it, it, it shows us this love that existed in this covenant that's expressed here in chapter 10. You ask, well, what does this love look like? Well, we just have to recall what we did last week. We talked, or two weeks ago, whenever it was. We talked about Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth in chapter 9. Uh, he's the son of, son of Jonathan, the grandson of, of Saul, and here Jonathan realizes what's going on, that his dad was a bad guy. God chose David uh, to be king of Israel, and Jonathan went to King David, and he asked him for his son. He asked him for that covenantal love that we just looked at. Well, here in verse chapter 9, David offers Mephibosheth the same kind of cov covenantal love. He's offering it to him. He showers him with affection. He showers him with his protection. He takes this, this poor crippled kid and, and basically says, you know what, you don't have to worry about life anymore. You're part of the, my household. He, he restored his inheritance, which was a lot. King Saul was very wealthy. He died. Remember? And he just kind of, the caretaker took over. And he, well, I'll take care of Mephibosheth, but I really want this stuff. So he restored that inheritance. And the caretaker became even a servant to Mephibosheth. So all of a sudden, the tables are totally turned now. And, and not only that, but he even adopted him into his own family. He said, you're not going to, even though these guys are going to go out there and harvest all this food for you, you're not going to eat that food because you're going to be eating it. Where? My table. Okay. And, and just David shows this generous love, this, this covenant-keeping love that he wanted to express, express to Mephibosheth based on the relationship he had with Jonathan. And so David says, I will deal loyally 
with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as he has dealt loyally with me. This chapter has to be seen through the lens of this covenantal love in action. That's what we want to see. That's what, that's what the, the intent is here. And the reason that this is so important, if you don't see this, you're going to miss what happens in chapter 10 and chapter, or chapter 11 and chapter 12. Because, remember, David's kind of reached his peak here <laughs> in life. It's kind of like a pear, you know, he's going up and now, now he's headed down the other side. You know, it's not going to end, it's, 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 it's going down fast, as we're going to find out. But what's going to happen next week when we look at, at chapter 11 is we're going to find that, you know what? David is no longer giving out this covenantal love. What happens? He's in deep need of this covenantal love, this gracious, generous love. He's going to need God to show him his said. He's going to need it due to his own sinfulness, due to his own fallenness. And so since Nehesh was the enemy of Saul, he's viewed as, as a friend and supporter to David. And it's implied that David and Nehesh somehow entered into a covenantal agreement because he wants to communicate the continual loyalty here to his son, Hanan. And so this, this happens here, and we see this, that this, this covenantal love is offered here in verse 2. I will deal loyally with him. He, he says this. So David sent by his servants to console him, Concerning his father, hey, her dad passed away. I'm, I'm here to console you. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Now, this was a very uh, a gracious endeavor. Okay, they were, they were going into their, their property. They were going across the border. You could see where they might be viewed as a threat. All right, it'd be like if the leader of North Korea showed up in D.C. <laughs> you know, why are you here? Okay. Um, especially since there was no invitation given. Okay, he might have a problem getting into the country. Well, they had ways. And so they ended up there. And they wanted to communicate this covenantal love, this graciousness, on behalf of their leader, King David. But verse 3, look at what happens. This is where... This kindness, this love is rejected. It says, But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, the leader, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Here's what's really happening. Open your eyes. Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So what's he doing? He, he, the, the ambassadors here, the, 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 the counselors to their, their leader are saying, hey, don't believe this. Yeah, they're coming waving a white flag. Don't, don't believe it for a second. They're totally undermining it. They're undermining the kind of the ambassadors that went on behalf of King, of King David, but they're also undermining King David. They're, they're saying, hey, you can't trust him. You know, we've heard about what he does to people. <laughs> There's not an army around that he hasn't overthrown. Don't take David at face value. So he's undermining David's. Now remember, don't forget who David is. David is God's anointed leader. He's the, he's the small M Messiah of their day. He's representative of God. He's undermining David's word, first of all. And he's also undermining David's character. 
as a representative of God. When you think about that, this happened a long time ago. Remember in the Garden of Eden? It goes all the way back to the, the originality of sin. What does the devil do? The devil is in the business of imputing bad motives to God. That's what, that's what his job is. He wants to impute bad motives to God. So back in Genesis, the woman reports to the servant, serpent, well, here's what God said. And what does the serpent do? Well, you're not really going to die. I mean, do you really believe that God would kill you for just eating of this fruit of the tree? Come on. No, you know what? He says in Genesis 3, 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. What's he doing? He's painting a picture. Hey, God's not really who you think he is. He's a big liar. Not only that, he's trying to, he's trying to keep stuff from you. This rightfully yours. Your eyes are going to be open, he says, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Satan is not stupid. He's an angel of light. He doesn't say, here, here's a big door, big door of sin, walk on through. No, he doesn't say that. He paints it in a way that it looks enticing. So he's telling Eve, God doesn't want you to have something. He's, hold something. he's holding something back. He's denying something from you that's rightfully yours. And you can't trust him because what he's saying is not true. You're not really going to die. See, the advisors of Hanan, their, 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 their leader, he, they're, they're accusing David of being insincere. They're accusing David of being hostile. They're accusing David of spying out the land and he's going to overthrow him. And there's a very interesting biblical principle here that we can apply to our lives even today. And it's simply this. It's written down there for you. I think the enemy of God and the enemy of human beings will always impute bad motives to God all the time. All the time. I mean, you know, and we we experience this, I think, in our own personal lives. I'm sure we do. I do. You know, you're trying to do the right thing, trying to live a godly life, righteous life, whatever. And then something happens. You get a bad report from the doctor. You get the, the, the bad diagnosis. And, and what do we do? God, why did you allow this to happen to me? I'm, can't you see I'm trying to live for you? What are you doing? That's where we go with it. Where, does those, where do those feelings come from? Where do those thoughts come from? They don't come from God. They come from the pit of hell. They come from Satan himself. Satan loves to impute bad motives to God and God's anointed and God's anointed they did it with Jesus oh look at look at this guy you know he's this big religious leader well the Jews didn't buy that for a second they they imputed bad well you you're doing all these you're doing all these miracles but you know you're doing it by the power of Satan (laughs) they couldn't contest the miracles but they didn't want to say that he was doing them so they said Satan was doing them through him can you imagine they're talking to God himself Satan always insinuates doubt. He insinuates distrust of God and his word. That's where that comes from. And so when these people were questioning David's character, what were they doing? They were questioning God's anointed king. They were questioning, like I said, the small Messiah, small M in their time in history. As a matter of fact, David even, he writes about this over in in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, he, he writes about these people attacking him. He, he says in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers 
take counsel together against the Lord and what? Against his anointed. And they say this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What are they saying? They're trying to bind us down. They're, they're trying to make us do stuff we don't want to do. We want to do, we want our freedom. We want to do whatever we want. The Lord and his anointed are putting chains on us. They're putting fetters on us. I mean, they really saw God's reign, his power, as something restrictive, not as something that was a blessing. They, they saw it as something that takes away their freedom. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, the same thing happens today when you share the claims of Christ with people. I don't want that. I don't want to bow down to your God and your rules. They almost use the same terminology. I want my freedom. I can do whatever I want. I'm my own God. I want the freedom to sin. I don't want to be ridden down with guilt. The gospel message is too restrictive. The gospel message is too exclusive. It's only too exclusive if it's not true, beloved. That's the only way it's too exclusive. Why they don't see this is this generous covenantal love of God that lies behind the message is because God hasn't allowed them to see it. They choose not to see it. And see, the willingness of God shown to us by David in this, this whole story here in Second Samuel is to shower upon us kindness, to shower upon us love. That's the gospel. So what do they do? Back to Second Samuel. They dishonor the messengers, the king's messengers, the envoy of, of David. I mean, they should have had diplomatic immunity. They were just there on a diplomatic thing. They were, just, they were just coming to share some news, good news. Hey, the king wants to bless you guys. Don't believe them. They impute bad motives. Not only that, verse 4, 2 Samuel 10, so Hanan took David's servants. He listened to his counselors. He took David's servants and he shaved off half the beard. You say, that's kind of weird. Well, to shave off a beard, they had to have a beard. Why did they have a beard? They had a beard because it was really an unrighteous thing to do to shave your beard. It set you apart from other people as an Israelite. It was an honor to have a long beard. To have half of it shaved off, not the whole thing, just half of it, really marked you out. Even I mean, it was a really shameful, bad thing. It was considered sinful to some degree because... In their beard was their status, their identity as Israelites. It's not uncommon today in some communities in the Middle East. You see pe- people with beards. Well, why, why don't they shave? Because that's not their custom. That's how they identify each other. And not only that, but they used to wear long clothes. Okay, we see that even in the New Testament. They still had long clothes, remember? They had to hem up their clothes to run, things like that. Well, with Israel, they, on their long clothes, they would wear uh, what they would call tassels. And it was to remind them they were representative of God's law, God's word. And so when they were out in battle and these soldiers would have these, these tassels around them or whatever it might be, and they were tempted like any other soldiers to rape and pillage and do things that weren't, weren't honoring to God, they would see those tassels and say, wait a minute, we're serving a higher power here. We're serving God. We're not going to do what the other, other folks do. And it reminded mainly the men who wore these, they were ultimately accountable to God and his law. That was the purpose of these. 
So when they had them stripped down, naked, basically from the hips down, and said, here, here's your, you know, you, now you got half a beard and no clothes. Get, get out of here. That's what they did. Think how humiliating that would be. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. I mean, in our day and age, it would be similar to if an entourage from America went over to the Soviet Union and say one of them was a, a military officer, say a general or some four-star admiral, and they had a meeting with Putin. And they go in there, and he walks up to them, and they all have tons of stuff on their chest, and he takes it and he rips it off and he throws it down and he stomps on it. And then he takes their head covering and he throws that down and he stomps on that. And this is all before everybody. And then he takes an American flag and he burns it right in their presence. Totally unprovoked. You don't think that you would have a problem if that was done in the Kremlin to one of our representatives who represented who? Represented our government, represented our president, represented our country? I think both sides of the aisle, people would be, wait, this can't happen. I mean, you know, you'd be looking at war. Well, that's what these men did. They did it intentionally. They did it to insult the, the man that they were representing, King David. And what did they do? They rejected his, his offer, his free offer of, of covenantal love, just flat rejected it and said, no, we'll show you who's in control here. Well, it says in verse 5, when it was told to David, <laughs> he sent to meet them. Shows some compassion on David, doesn't it? I mean, here he's the commander, he's the king, and he finds out some of his men are, are dealing with some issues here. They, they were humiliated. It says that they were greatly ashamed. And the king said, he didn't chew them out, he said, you know what, just remain here in Jericho, <laughs> let your beards grow back. In other words, you've know, you got to kind of leave absence here for a while because this is too shameful for you to even be seen anywhere. <laughs> and by the way, put some clothes on. Well, in verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, uh-oh, we just woke, woke up the lion. <laughs> the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, the king of Mahaka the, with with a thousand men and the men of Tob, 12,000. So what do they got? They got five armies to go against David. Verse 7. And then David heard of it. So what happens? The, the, the love is offered. The love is rejected. And now all of a sudden the love is what? It's withdrawn. This covenantal love, it's like, okay, that's off the table. Verse 7. And, and when David heard of it, he sent Joab. Who was Joab? He was, he was his military leader. I mean, this guy was one bad dude. He didn't want to mess with Joab, but he was just, he commanded your attention. And so David had to respond. So he sends two of his best generals, really, Joab and his brother, Abishai, to face them. And they're kind of caught in this, this military move called a, a pincer where they have the, the enemy coming in on both sides. It says, verse 9, and when... Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and the rear. So he's surrounded, basically. He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother. And he arraigned 
arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the, the Syrians are too strong for me, then you'll help me and vice versa. This is the deal. We're brothers, right? Right. And then, so interesting here because they come up with this simple plan to split up and if the other one needs rescued, help him out. And then basically through the next several verses here till the end of the chapter, we see the results of this. The Syrians versus the Israelites, well, the Israelites come out on top. The Ammonites versus the Israelites because the Syrians ran, well, they, you know, then they did the same. All right, so they're, they're pretty much winning. Joab is kind of like the, the, the Jack Bauer of his day. You know Jack Bauer from 24, if you ever watched that show. I mean, you know, he, the guy can do everything, right? That's what Joab was like. He didn't want to mess with this guy. And you would not think that he would say what he says in verse 12. It, it just goes totally against who you think this guy is, how you're picturing him to be. But look at what he says in verse 12. He says, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people. That sounds like a military commander. And then he says this, and for the cities of our God. And then he says the most profound spiritual thing that anybody says in the whole chapter. He says, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. That does not sound like a military leader. It just doesn't. And I think what God wants us to understand here is that sometimes good theology comes from a surprising source. <laughs> you wouldn't have expected him to say that. That's just an amazing theological statement that he just made. May the Lord do what seems good to him. You know, I think in life there are some things that we don't let God talk to us about. Just in general. And we all probably have those things. We just don't want to go there. But I think there are also some people who will not allow God to talk to them through. There are some people that just won't hear it. doesn't matter who it is. Sometimes it matters exactly who it is. See, we need to get the theology of Job into our minds. We need to understand that, you know what? The Lord, may the Lord do what seems good to him. You think in life sometimes God promises his things. But then when you live life, you realize, well, no, he really never did. <laughs> Um, God never promised that when you got married, your marriage was going to be the perfect marriage and you were going to live perfect harmony for the entire rest of your life. God never promised you that. God never promised that your children would never get sick. He never promised that. He never promised you that you might someday lose your job. He never promised you that. He hasn't made those kind of specific promises to us. And sometimes I believe in Christianity today, people want to believe those things. Well, if you follow Christ, boy, your marriage is going to be perfect, and your kids will be perfect, and your job's going to, your wallet's never going to run out of money. That's not true. It's just simply not true. They're selling you a bill of goods if they teach that. He hasn't made those kind of specific promises to us. But he has promises. And the one promise is right here is that he will always do what seems good to who? Him. He will always do what seems good to him. That's a promise you can take to the bank all day long. John Calvin, in one of his sermons on this text, it says, he said this, he said, we must remain in suspense about many things in life. We just have to remain in suspense because we don't have the answer. 
We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how things are going to turn out. And extended periods of our life are time spent in suspense because of just that, of the unknown. So verse 12, Joab comes through. He says, be of good courage. Let us not... Let us be courageous for the people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what seems good to him. We need to learn that theology. We need to let that sink into our heart, into our mind. And when we hit the tough spots in life, when the child is rushed to ICU or when the spouse walks out or, or when the, the diagnosis and the prognosis are both bad or the economy turns down and, and we lose our job, this is where our soul needs to go to take Refuge, to find refuge. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Calvin also said this, we have permission to doubt what is not clear to us, where we don't know the outcomes in life. We have permissions to doubt. That's okay. But in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our suspense, in the midst of our anxiousness, What God wants us to see, we have to come back to, may the Lord do what seems good to him. That's where we have to end at the the end of the day. Well, in the battle, it's resolved here because the Messiah, small m, (laughs) the king, shows up on the battlefield. And he destroys the Syrians, as we read. He destroys the Ammonites. And in the end, the Ammonite cities become the cities of David. Please understand, that was never his plan. That was never David's plan. He didn't set out, I'm going to take your cities. And that's not even part of our land of Israel, but I'm going to cross the river and I'm going to take divide and conquer. That's not what his plan was. What was his plan? To show, us, to show them covenantal love. Go back to Psalm 2. Go back to Psalm 2. And listen to what David writes in Psalm 2, verse 7. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he shares really how he appealed to Hanan. It's right here in in, in Psalm 2, verse 10. He says, Now therefore, O kings, all you who are going to come against God's anointed, be wise, be warned. He says, O rulers of the earth, verse 11, Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then he says this in verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and perish, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why would we take refuge in him? Because of this covenantal love that he gives us, this gracious, overflowing, abundant love. I mean, think of Mephibosheth, just for a second. He's the son of Jonathan. He's the grandson of Saul. He should have been killed. Chapter 9, he should have been dead. But what does he do? He bows to the king. He bows to King David. Where is he today? Where is Mephibosheth here in chapter 10? He's in the king's house. He's he's in the royal palace. He has the king's care, the king's protection. He's been given back the inheritance that he thought he would never have again. He's been adopted into the king's family, and he's even eating at the king's table. Why? Because David showed him 
to death. He showed him this covenantal love because he has chosen to take refuge from the king in the king's presence. Mephibosheth chose to take refuge from the king. He thought he was going to kill him. But he took refuge in the king's presence because blessed are all who take refuge in him. The message here for us is simple. When God approaches us and says he loves you, believe it. Believe it. When God approaches you and wants to show you this kind of covenantal kindness, this, this covenant love, believe it. That's what he intends to do. Don't believe the lie that, wow, well, no, there's, there's something wrong here. He's trying to do an end around on you. He's trying to keep something from you. Believe this. Believe that he wants to give you more than he would ever take away from you. He wants to enrich you more than you could ever even imagine why would he do this? Why would the God that we serve leave heaven and come to earth and live here for 30 years and then go to a cross and die and pay for our sin? Why would he do this? It's because of this covenantal love. Verse 19 shows what happens in the end. It says, When all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer, who came against King David, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. You know, this, this speaks really of, to be honest, the Lordship of Christ. Until you bow your knee to Christ, until you're willing to say, like Joab said there in verse 12, may the Lord do what seems good to him. You're not going to have peace. You're not going to have the ability to lay your head on the pillow at night knowing that, you know what, I don't know, understand why this is happening or why this has happened or whatever, but you know what, I have to turn to God. I have to lay it at his feet because I'm holding on to the promise that God, the Lord, will do what seems good to him. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we pray that you would just uh, bless our hearts as we leave this place tonight and just help us to live each day for you. Help us to understand that you are doing a work in each and every one of us. And, and Lord, part of that process is that sanctifying process that has to happen. And, and as it happens, sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it feels, doesn't feel too good. But Lord, we know that um, you're going to do what's right in your eyes for us. And Lord, thank you for allowing us to partake of this covenantal love that, Lord, maybe we rejected it at first, but Lord, finally, you drew us to yourself. And Lord, we are so thankful for our salvation. We're so thankful that we have the spiritual eyes to understand these truths that are before you. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to question your motives. We don't have to impute bad motives to you because you're a holy God. And you love us more than we love ourselves. And so, Father, we just thank you for each one here tonight and pray you dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.